I want to talk about tonight the subject, and I say it all the time, I'll say it again, that we don't compare notes, but it turns out that, again, it looks like we're talking about the same thing. She's talking about pursuing God, and tonight my topic is stay at his feet. So get Ruth chapter 3. Stay at his feet. If I were to have a little subtopic, it would be uh, the desire for a new covenant. I'm not talking about the New Testament. I'm talking about a new contract, a new facet of relationship with God. Seeing a new facet of him. Taking your relationship to another level that you've never seen before. Ruth chapter 3, we're going to read at verse number 6 down to 15. But I'm going to read from, let's see, what am I reading from tonight? The Living Bible Translation. It says, so she went down, talking about Ruth, to the threshing floor that night and followed her mother-in-law Naomi's instructions. After Boaz had finished a good meal, he lay down very contentedly beside a heap of grain and went to sleep. Then Ruth came quietly and lifted the covering off his feet and lay there. Suddenly around midnight, he awakened and sat up, startled. There was a woman lying at his feet. Who are you, he demanded. It's I, sir, Ruth, she replied. Make me your wife according to God's law, for you are my closest relative. Thank God for a girl like you, he exclaimed, for you are being even kinder to Naomi now than before. Naturally, you'd prefer a younger man, even though poor. But you have put aside your personal desires. Now don't worry about a thing, my child. I'll handle all the details for everyone knows what a wonderful person you are. But there is one problem. It's true that I am a close relative, but there is someone else who is more closely related to you than I. Stay here tonight, and in the morning I'll talk to him. And if you will marry me, I mean, if he will marry you, fine, let him do his duty. But if he won't, then I will. I swear by Jehovah, lie down until the morning. So she lay at his feet until the morning and was up early before daybreak. For he had said to her, don't let it be known that a woman was here at the threshing floor. Bring your shawl, he told her. Then he tied up a bushel and a half of barley in it as a present for her mother-in-law and laid it on her back. Then she returned to the city. Well, what happened, dear? Naomi asked her when she arrived home. She told Naomi everything and gave her the barley from Boaz and mentioned his remark that she mustn't go home without a present. Then Naomi said unto her, Just be patient until we hear what happens, for Boaz won't rest until he has followed through on this. He'll settle it today. With that, just a few verses found in Exodus chapter 40. Starting at the latter part of verse 33, he says, So at last Moses finished the work. Then the cloud covered the tabernacle, and the glory of the Lord filled it. Moses was not able to enter because the cloud was standing there, and the glory of the Lord it filled the tabernacle. Whenever the cloud lifted and moved, the people of Israel journeyed onward following it but if the cloud stayed they stayed until it moved the cloud rested upon the tabernacle during the daytime and at night there was fire in the cloud so that all the people of Israel could see it and this continued throughout all their journeys stay at his feet if we start at the beginning of the story of Ruth and Naomi we realize that Naomi was a woman of Israel who had a husband. And she went off when there was famine in Israel. Her husband went on to another place where they could be secure. And there they took their two sons, and their two sons got married, and they had two wives. Naomi's husband died while they were gone, and so did the two sons die. 
So we have Naomi and the two daughter-in-laws. So Naomi decided, I'm going to go back to Israel because she had heard that God was restoring the land and, and the crops were growing and God was healing the land again. So she figured, I'll go back home since the word is flourishing now. So she took her daughter-in-laws, and then after thinking about it, she changed her mind and said, well, y'all don't come back home with me because I don't have any sons to give you. I have nothing else to offer you. And then I'm too old to have children, and even if I could have children, you can't wait around and, and, and wait until they're grown enough to get married, so you might as well go on back to your father's house and find somebody there to marry. So one of the daughters said, okay, I'll go back to my father's house. The other one said, no, there's nothing for me at my father's house. Everything that I know to be good in my life came from, from you, your people, your God, your worship, your sacrifice. So I'm going to stick with you. All right, so here is where we pick the story up. They get back to Israel, and Ruth ends up working the field of Boaz, and Boaz is very gracious to her. But I don't want to pick up the part where, where he bestowed her with so many blessings. Because, you know, we're already blessed, remember? How you doing? I'm blessed and highly favored. So we're not going to deal with the blessed part. We got that. The part that we need to get to the night with Ruth was that she was not loved. Naomi represented the closest thing to happiness for Ruth. Another point is that Ruth's husband was dead, and all she knew was that he was the offspring of Naomi. So she must have some kind of favor in order to produce the blessing that my husband was. The man that I was married to blessed me so much and made me so happy that, that I got to stick with the woman that gave birth to him. Because there must be something about her in order to raise a man like that. In order to nurture a blessing like that, I've got to stick with her. So whatever kind of people you are, Naomi, whatever this Israel is, whatever God you worship, that's the God I want to worship. We have what God calls pure religion. Let's get it in James chapter 1. A lot of times we focus on the third point. He gives us three points that will place us, in God's point of view, into pure religion. He says in verse 27, the Christian who is pure and without fault from God the Father's point of view is the one who takes care of the orphans and the widows and who remains true to the Lord, not soiled and dirtied by his contacts with the world. Now, we, we get the third part right. I ain't smoked in 30 years and I ain't drunk in 10 years and I ain't fornicated in five years. But here, and the whole purpose of the deacons in the first century church, not our churches today, because they have all kind of different job descriptions for the deacon. But for the deacons here, it was the, so that they can take care of the widows and the orphans. A widow is one whose blessed vows have come to an end. It is one who is really now half a person. Because the Bible said with the man and a woman, the two shall become what? One flesh. So if you take one and split it in half, you got what? Half a person. So now I'm not really whole. Ruth now was not really a whole person because the other half of her was now gone. So she needed to be tended to in order to heal what had died. We, we need to take time and allow God to minister to and to heal what had died. Don't run off so quickly and say, oh, I'm fine. I'm all right. It, it's, it don't bother me that I'm okay. I'll, I'll make it. I'm strong. Let the weak say that I'm strong. No, you're not. Because that thing is going to keep creeping up in other areas of your life, and it's going to keep on coming back and coming back and coming back until you heal it, until you allow God to heal it. So pure religion, that's our ministry, to speak words of prophecy and minister to their brokenness. 
well, they've they been around here long enough. They ought to know that they shouldn't be doing that. They shouldn't be acting like this. They put it in the phrase. What would Jesus do? Look at the people that Jesus talked to. And look at the people who most chided Jesus. It was the church people chiding Jesus. Lord, you sitting over there with them publicans. You, you going over there, you, you hanging out with them. They didn't even wash their hands. He said, you scribes and Pharisees, you Sadducees, you're hypocrites. There's going to be more mercy for Sodom and Gomorrah than for you with your judgmental self because you refuse to reach out. I gave you the power. The scribes were responsible for repeating and sending forth the word of God. And their job was so serious that they took so much time to make sure that every word was copied from the Torah just right. But then you won't, you won't implement it. You won't take the word that I, that I said is, is life and it's spirit and it's power. Your only job is to put it on the paper. But not into action. Sodom and Gomorrah got a better chance than you. Pure religion. Are we in the business of healing? Why is there so much brokenness? I'm part of the body of Christ. If you think of the body of Christ, in him is no darkness at all. In him is no sin at all. In him is no brokenness at all. So if I place myself in him, I shouldn't be this messed up. Something's wrong. There's a disconnection somewhere. So we take care of the widows, those who have become now half the person that they were because what they had for so long for their wholeness and their happiness has now changed. And in pure religion is to take care of the orphans or the fatherless. One who is fatherless is one that has no provisions. You've got to realize that in biblical times that people stayed under their father's household until the time that they were old enough to go out and get married. With Abraham, he sent Isaac out probably in his 20s or 30s, and said, now you go out and get you a wife. But up until then, he was in his father's house. For the woman, they were to stay in their father's house. That was their provision. That was their security. That was their inheritance. So the fatherless now become, when we think in terms of tr a true, real, pure religion, are those who take the ones that are now half the person that they were, and the ones that have no provision, no inheritance, lost in the world, and to minister to them. Because some of us have been separated from the vows we made with the Lord, we have become widows. Because the vow that we took with God, when we said, Lord, I receive you, you, will, you are Lord and God. Lord means that you have complete control of my life, and I'm not controlling any of it. But soon thereafter, somehow, we found ourselves in the driver's seat. So Naomi may not have had any more sons to marry off or been able to bear new sons. But the one thing that Naomi had was a relationship. And it was a relationship that Naomi never even thought of. She didn't go back to Israel and say, let me go back and find you a husband. Let me go back and find the nearest of kin. All she knew that she was mourning. You got three women. They're mourners. One have gone off to, their, to her father's house. The other two have left. They're on their way back. But they're in the state of mourning. But Naomi had a relationship that she didn't even think of. Sometimes we have to stop and think and say, wait a second. I have a connection. Sometimes we get so caught, we get so frustrated, we get so worried, we get bitter, we get angry, we get frustrated, and don't think long and hard enough to say, wait, I have a divine connection. 
Naomi's connection was so powerful that it linked to the greatest anointing in life. Because later, Boaz and Ruth had a son who ended up being the grandfather of King David and on down the line to Jesus Christ. She's walking around, pity party, sorrowful, now no husband, but she's got a connection. When Naomi came back into the land, everybody in the village was saying, oh, Naomi, Naomi, Naomi. Oh, it's so good to see you. Where you been? How you been doing? What's going on? She said, don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara. Naomi means pleasant. And right now, all that I've been through and all that I've suffered and all that I've lost, there's nothing pleasant about me right now. You need to call me bitter because the Lord has saw fit to take everything that I thought was happiness away from me. So the people have more sense than Naomi. You don't have a right to change your name just because you're going through something. You don't have a right to call yourself something other than pleasant when God named you that. You don't have a right to call yourself anything other than blessed when God said that you're blessed. Remember, your words have power. We're created in his image and after his likeness. If we're created in his image and after his likeness, he's a God of word. When he speaks, it comes to pass. He put that in you. So when you speak, it has power in it. And if you call yourself Mara, guess what? You'll be Mara. I'd rather stay Naomi. I'm glad that throughout the rest of the text, God kept it as Naomi. Didn't change it to Mara, because God knew the end from the beginning. So don't change your name. Just because you're empty now doesn't make you worthless. The Lord emptied you out just to fill you up with something better. So Naomi gives some advice to Ruth. Says, I want you to do something. Once she realized that Boaz had an eye for Ruth and, and Boaz had mercy on Ruth and Boaz had instructed all of his harvesters. Now, there's this woman that, that's coming behind me. And what Ruth did was she went and just gathered the scraps. The harvesters were dropping out of their collection. As they went and harvested the grain, she would just pick up the little grain that was left over. So Boaz said, who is this woman? They said, oh, that, that's, uh, that, that's Naomi. Um, uh, that's Ruth. That's Naomi's daughter-in-law. And he said, there's something about this woman. What I want y'all to do is I want y'all to just start dropping stuff on purpose. So God just, people just start blessing you. Don't know where it come from. Because God told them, just drop it on purpose. They'll, they'll pick it up. So what she says, Naomi says, okay, he's got, he's got something for you. Now what I want you to do is I want you to do three things, and you need to write these down. Number one, I want you to wash. Clean yourself up. You know that somebody that is suffering from depression will just sit in the house. They won't bathe. They won't get up and wash up, do fix their hair up or nothing. What, what is it about the mind that just lets everything else go? Number two, she says, I want you to anoint yourself. Don't go to the bishop. Don't go to the minister. Don't go to the deacon. Anoint yourself. The Bible says, let him that is afflicted pray. So wash yourself. Anoint yourself. And then change your clothes. Change what you're wearing. If you, were, if you go over to, uh, I think it's Isaiah 61, one of my favorite scriptures, it, we read that Jesus is the greatest missionary in life because all the things that he came to do, he said, one thing I'll do is I'll change what you're wearing and I will give you a garment of praise for a spirit of heaviness. I can change what you're wearing. See, Ruth was still in her mourning clothes. She was a mourner. They had outfits to let folk know, I'm going through. 
In fact, by the time Jesus came on the scene, they had professional folk that mourned. If, if somebody died in your family, whether they knew you or not, the mourners would come. And they would mourn for you. But she needed to change. Somebody, we need to change. Change our thinking. Change our attitude. Change our perception. The whole thing of repentance is that we have left it at the baptismal pool. Change doesn't stop. Repentance doesn't stop at water baptism. Because that simply means a change of mind, a change of heart as to, number one, who God is. Number two, as to who you are. And number three, how God operates. Those are the, the, the aspects of repentance that you got to change your mind about. And if you think that you got all of God at that particular point and that your mind will never be transformed after that, you're missing the whole big picture. We are changed from glory to glory in life. The Old Testament priests, they knew how to approach God because he gave them the instructions to do so. The New Testament Christians know how to approach God because in the word, he has told us what is required. Whether in our private communion with the Lord or in public worship, we have no right to alter the principles of approach that God has laid down. When God gives us a principle in the Bible, it's settled. It don't change for you, don't change for me, don't change for a bishop, don't change for, for a, a, a father in the Catholic Church or the, or the Pope. The principle is set. And when he says that there's a certain way that you to, are to approach me, if you, if you expect an answer. Now, you could go through the antics and approach me, and you could, you could pray like that man that prayed out loud so that everybody could hear him. And for most folk, they would say, man, he's really praying. Man, he, oh, that, that's a spiritual man right there. Can you hear the way he's praying? I, I don't envy those Muslims because they openly bow down three times and they stop what they're doing. I don't envy them. I go to my prayer closet because he says if you go in your prayer closet and do stuff in secret, he said, God's going to reward you and everybody else going to have to recognize you serve an awesome God. You don't have to act out and try to prove physically in the physical realm that you're serving God. We're going to get into some territory tomorrow. Well, you never knew when the cloud was going to just pop up. All you had to do was make sure you were prepared. And tonight we want to prepare ourselves. You got to wash, anoint, and change. And when it comes to worshiping God, too often people do that which is right in their own eyes and substitute human inventions for divine instructions. Because we've taken man and placed him above God. We've taken systems and placed them above God. Remember, one, one of the retreats I talked about the, the sin of Eli's son. And we always talked about the fornication. But the Bible says that they took people's sacrifices off of the burning hot altar. And if we stand in the way of anybody that is wanting to sacrifice themselves to God and we give them a substitute and we snatch it off the altar, oh, that's a great sin. God put them to death for that. And most religious systems are set up to where people cannot put their sacrifice on God's altar. You got to put it on our altar. I don't think anybody built more, more altars than Jacob. But Jacob had to build an altar for every experience in his life. He didn't have a stagnant altar. Come back to the same old place. But when he met God on a different level, he built a totally new altar and sacrificed new sacrifices to him. All right, Ruth. Ruth, number one, she said, wait until Boaz is at rest. Once he's at rest, 
He'll be in a position of ease. Some folk you don't want to mess with when they're hungry, <laughs> when they're sleepy, when, when, you know, they had a long day, and you come to them with, with your issues. So she's, she's telling Ruth here, let him get settled. Let him eat. Let him drink. Let him get rested. And then when, when, when he lays down, see, when, when somebody lays down, that means that they have rested from the day's toil. That means that their attention now is centered. They're, they're relaxed. They're, they're not all discombobulated, but they're able to focus. Now, the scripture, we are not to think that Boaz got drunk. Because now was a time when Israel was repenting before God and God was restoring them. So he was actually happy to have enough food on the table after this great famine in order to be full and lay down and sleep. So she said, go in when he's at rest, uncover his feet. In the Old Testament, the, the uncovering of the feet was a sign of a contract. It was like us agreeing on something. And actually, you see this when Boaz goes to the closer relative um, to, to arrange Ruth's marriage. He takes, they uh, take off their shoes in order to seal that deal. Next, she laid her head on his feet. There's a progression here. See, sometimes we come and we, we want God to work between 11 and 1. And Lord, that's the time you got to do it. I got stuff to do. I got to go and, and I got to go eat dinner. I got to get back home. I got to get the kids ready for school. And, and you got one to 11, 11 to one, or you got 10 to 12, or whatever the case may be. And how can the Lord work? Because we fill up that time anyway. Job 10 and 12 says, Thou hast granted me life and favor, and thy visitation has preserved my spirit. His visitation is the thing that will preserve your spirit. You need divine intervention. We are in a spiritual warfare. There is brokenness. There are yokes that need to be destroyed. Here, tonight. And we need visitation. It's not about, we could say the most beautiful things. We could try to put our words together. But if God doesn't give you a visit, if he doesn't show you his glory, there's no change for you. It's impossible. This chapter deals with redemption. The Bible says you were not redeemed with corruptible things such as silver and gold, nor your conversation, your lifestyle, or the traditions received from your father. Yet we try to hang on to our traditions to redeem us. We need divine visitation. They say that about every 50 years or so, there's a revival in the earth. About every generation, there comes a whole new hunger than the previous generation. Why? Because we didn't mix it with so much stuff. But thank God that our spirits cry out to God. We have to get up into that tree and start yelling out to him and say, I need help. How is it that thousands can touch him, but only one woman that touched the hem of his garment got healed? A lot of folk were touching him. We touch him, we, we, we look religious. They can say, oh, it's got Christian written on the building. It's Pentecostal. It's charismatic. But folk walk away and not healed. When we claim to be the church of the living God, they leave our so-called worship services untouched. And so do we, some of us. Sometimes you just got to go and get yours. Don't worry about what, how it looks, what folks say. You get desperate enough. Desperate times call for desperate measures. Nobody's going to sit there and starve without trying to get food. Folk will steal before they starve to death. Why die when you can live? 
So when, when Boaz wakes up, he realized there's a woman at his feet. Now, it's pitch black. There's no GE. There's no lights, no light bulbs. He is asleep. It's dark. It's nighttime. It's midnight. We're, we're at a time when the days are changing. And he wakes up and says, there's somebody at my feet. If Jesus were to look down, who would he see? Because when Moses was in the mountain getting the mind of God, God looked down and nobody was at his feet. Because he rested on the mountain. That means the base of the mountain was his footstool. But the people backed away because they didn't want to hear the awesome voice of God. They backed away from his feet. And then they bowed. They made their own feet. And called it God. We made our own feet. And we call it Jesus. But we're nowhere near his feet. We're near the PAW's feet. We're near the UPC's feet. The Apostolic Assembly's feet. Jesus says, I got one body. Who's at my feet? When he said, what do you want, Ruth? What do you want? And she comes right out the box. I came to get under your skirt. To get under the skirt. When a man put his skirt over a woman, it was a vow of marriage. It meant protection. Ruth, what do you want? I want protection. Protection from what? Protection from anything that's out there to come against me, to harm me, to hurt me. Things that I don't see. Sometimes things that we don't see, God's got protected. A marriage is a covering. I've got you covered. I'm here to protect you. If you don't see some things that I might see going on, I'm going to step up and make sure that everything is right for you as my wife. And as the wife, she steps up and makes sure everything is all right for the husband. I mean, we'll, we'll snap somebody up. You ain't going to talk to my wife like that. Oh, we got a problem. You ain't going to treat my husband like that. But it's a protection. I'm here to protect you. You're appointed to redeem me, Boaz. I need to be protected. I need to be married. Ultimately, really what I need is I need to be loved. Most of us have gotten into more hurts trying to find love than anything else. Just to find somebody that's going to love me the way I need to be loved. That's a, a lot of us, that's our biggest frustration in life. Why didn't my mama love me? Why didn't my father love me enough to be there? How could they just walk out on me? Ruth had lost her love. She had Naomi, but a friend is nothing like a spouse. We are God's bride. And God has friends. But he calls us the apple of his eye. That is the ultimate relationship throughout any generation, throughout any dispensation, is the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, his bride. There's no greater relationship that God has ever had. He doesn't have that with the angels. He didn't have that with the children of Israel. He won't have that with the tribulation saints. He won't have that with the new world order. His bride. Now you see why the enemy wants to attack us in that area? Because that is the relationship that most resembles God and man. It's marriage. So I need protection. You're appointed by divine law to redeem me. It is one thing to be given life, but it's entirely a different, another different thing to mature into a place where you are ready for love and a lover. Let's get Ezekiel 16. Don't turn to it. I'll read it from because I got a different version. But you can write it down. Ezekiel 16, 1 through 8. It says, God's message came to me. Son of man, confront Jerusalem. 
with her outrageous violations. Say this, the message of God, the master, to Jerusalem. You were born and bred among Canaanites. Your father was an Amorite and your mother a Hittite. On the day you were born, your umbilical cord was not cut and you weren't bathed and cleaned up. You weren't rubbed with salt and you weren't wrapped in a baby blanket. No one cared a fig for you. No one did one thing to care for you tenderly as in these ways. You were thrown out into a vacant lot and left there, dirty and unwashed. A newborn, nobody wanted. A newborn, nobody wanted you. To this day, I don't understand how somebody could take a newborn baby and dump it in a trash can. But what he talks about here has become, we, we have come so spiritually depraved to where we have taken that in the spiritual realm and even brought it into the natural. And then God says, I came by and I saw you all miserable and bloody. Yes, I said to you, lying there helpless and filthy, live. Grow up like a plant in the field, and you did, and you grew up. Now, usually we stop there. I came by, you were polluted in your own blood. I stopped by and said, live. Now, that's one phase. If we were to continue reading, he says, you grew up tall and matured as a woman, full-breasted, with flowing hair, but... You were naked and vulnerable, fragile and exposed. You were living, because I said live, but you were naked. It's one thing to come up out the water and speak in tongues and say, I got, I'm born again, I, I'm saved. You, you're still naked, though. Because even though you're saved, God's got some healing he wants to still perform in your life. And it's pride that says, no, 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 I got this thing. I'm, I'm all right. That's all I need to do. So we think speaking in tongues covers everything. It does it all. We come to the altar speaking to good. Oh, man, they're all right. No, 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 no. There's some growing to do. It says you're, you, you were naked, you were vulnerable, you were fragile, and you were exposed. I came by again. He says, now he's passing by a second time. I thank God for second chances. The first time he passed by me, he, he saw that I was messed up and he said, I give you life. All right. And he walked on by. Then he says, I'm going to go visit that one that I said to live and I'm going to see how they're coming along in life now. He said, next time I came by, I saw you and saw that you were ready for love. And not only love, but ready for a lover. So we got a lot of folk living but have never grown into the position to where they're ready for love. We run from love. And the New Testament in 1 John says that if you only serve God because of what he can do to you, you have no idea what love is. That's really what that scripture says when he says, uh, uh, what is it, 1 John, he says that love casts out, perfect love casts out fear. If any man fear God, the love of God is not in him. The real rendition of that is if you fear God and what he can do to you and, and you know, oh, God's going to send me to hell. and then We're so afraid of going to hell. He said, you don't have no idea what my love is about. So are you ready for love? Because if you're ready for love, then you ought to be ready for a lover. So he says, I took care of you. I dressed you and I protected you. I promised you my love and entered the covenant of marriage with you, I, God, the master, gave my word, and you became mine. In Ruth's situation, we're taught no woman should ever ask a man to marry her. But Ruth here, Boaz says, what do you want? She says, I want you to marry me. I don't see nowhere in the scripture where he says, oh, I rebuke you, the word don't say that, that ain't the word, it's he that findeth the wife. If they woke up at midnight and talked, and Boaz said, all right, I'm going to take care of this. I can marry you, but first, I got to go to one who is a little closer to you. Y'all not going to like this. Jesus said, I came and I looked, 
And I looked out and saw if anybody could redeem, and there was none. But there was somebody closer to Naomi, to Ruth, than Boaz. There's somebody closer to you than Jesus. Is it the devil? Because when Jesus came, he went down into the grave, and he stayed there for three days, and he had this conversation that Boaz had with that other nearer kin. He had that conversation with the devil, and he snatched the keys of life. And he told the devil, you cannot redeem her. You cannot redeem him. They're mine. <laughs> and when that other one said, see, what the thing is, the other relative, he wanted the property of Ruth's husband. But he didn't want to give up some of his own stuff. See, when you took on somebody else's possession, you had to abandon yours. See, sometimes we want to get, but we, won't, we don't want to give it up. And the devil was not willing to give up anything. The Bible says he doesn't let his captives go free. So he says, all right, since you don't, you don't think she's worth that much to you, I'll take her. The devil doesn't care that much about us to give up his position. He wants, posi he wants God's position. So if that conversation took place at midnight, why was Ruth still there when the morning came? See, now your mind got to wonder. Did Boaz go back to sleep and Ruth stay at his feet? Or did they talk all the way through the night into the morning with her at his feet while they conversed? And then he got up. She went out on her way, gave her the grain, and he went on to take care of her business. See, sometimes we, 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 we get up and we leave too fast. So some of the most amazing times that I've had even in service is after, way, 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 way after the benediction. 30 minutes after. Why? Because we've had time to lay at the feet of Jesus. And he wants to see, how long are you willing to stay there? How long are you willing to worship? How long are you willing to just sit and commune with me? And, and then I'll show up. But if he doesn't do it by 9.15, I got to go. But what is it now to where we don't even realize how to worship and how to stay at his feet, how to, how to hang in the anointing? Because somebody said, amen, it's over? No. It's not over until God says it's over. I remember that, that, that morning, staying up until the morning, his compassion, his mercies, are renewed. She stayed until the next morning to see a new mercy. Ruth stayed there and saw a new compassion. What if she would have got up and left in one? All right, he said he's going to take care of it. I'm going to go on my way. But Boaz said, stay here. And Jesus is saying, stay here. I know it's late. See, we designed these retreats. We want to make sure we had the room long enough because God tends to just, you know, show up when we pursue him, when we stay at his feet longer. Now, the next morning when Ruth got back to Naomi, the King James Version says what in verse number, verse 16. Okay, oh, I have it now. And, she's, and when she came to her mother-in-law, her mother-in-law said, who are you, my daughter? Now, Naomi just saw her the night before. Naomi had been living with Ruth for God knows how many years. Why would Naomi say, who are you? It's the next morning. It's daylight. It's not nighttime. She says, who are you? What she was really asking, most of the text calls Ruth, I think she's mentioned something like 12 times, and half of the times she's mentioned as Ruth the Moabite. What Naomi was asking, are you still Ruth the Moabite or are you Mrs. Boaz now? You went to church, but who are, are you changed? Has your name been changed? That's all. Are you still a widow? Are you still half a person? 
You went and laid at the master's feet. All I want to know is has there been a change in your life? Who are you? And what did he say to you? And Ruth says, now I haven't got my change yet, but this is what he told me. This is when we need to encourage one another. See, because sometimes God will drop something in your spirit, and sometimes it'll take a year, two years, five years, 10 years for that thing to come to pass. That don't mean God didn't speak it. How long did it go before Abraham had a son? From the time when God first told him he had a son at 100. God came to him at 75. Then God didn't speak to him from 75 to 90. No, actually, I'm sorry. He didn't speak to him from 75 to 99. Then he came and said, this time next year. Then he put a time on it. So just because you ain't received it don't mean that God hasn't given it to you. But what you need to do, you need somebody like Naomi. Somebody pleasant, not Mara. You don't need the bitter folk talking to you. You need somebody that's pleasant to say, well, if he told you that, then the man's not going to rest till it gets done. God will not rest until everything that, is a, that he sent out for your life is accomplished. Why can't we sit with that? Why can't we say that if God says that I'm going to be all right? Because I, th- I don't believe that God will sit and let you go into a test without speaking to you and ministering to you. A lot of times we miss preparation. We miss the preparation for our test sometimes. Then we get in the test and wonder, oh, Lord, what, what's happening to me? He's, he tried to let you know that something was coming. Don't think that every day is going to be just bed of roses because you said you was a Christian. If anything, it's gonna, hell's coming one day or another. Prepare. Naomi knew that this man's going to do something. I've seen him look at you. I've seen the way he holds you in high esteem. And Boaz even told Ruth, don't let nobody see you here because they'll take this thing and run with it. So she says, my change hasn't come yet, but he told me he would look into the matter. I'm still messed up, but I got a little hope. He would never find the comfort he displayed when he woke up with Ruth at his feet until Ruth had an inheritance. See, what happened is Ruth's need interrupted Boaz's spirit of rest. That's what mercy is. Mercy is when God looks at your miserable condition and it makes him miserable. And to relieve his own misery, he has to do something to release yours. So he goes about and he spent the whole, Boaz didn't go to work the next day. He went to handle Ruth's misery. Sometimes we need to take a break and take time out for people. Psalm 37 and 5 says, open up before God and keep nothing back. He'll do whatever needs to be done. Philippians 1 and 6 says, there has never been the slightest doubt in my mind that the God who started this great work in you would keep at it and bring it to a flourishing finish on the very day Jesus Christ appears. So there's three things that we need to do. Number one, sit still. Do you notice that when Boaz says, what do you need? Ruth says, I need love. And the next thing that he spoke to her was fear not. I've said it before, the opposite of love is not hate. The opposite of love is fear. Whenever fear is presented in the Bible, know that it's God's love that's going to send it away. I need love, fear not. So she says, sit still, my daughter, in Ruth 3 and 18. Next, we need to stand still. Sit still, stand still, and be still. Exodus 14 and 3 says, And Moses said unto the people, Fear ye not, stand still, 
and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will show you this day. For the Egyptians whom ye have seen today, you shall see them again no more forever. And then be still. Isaiah, I'm sorry, Psalm 46 and 10 says, Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the heathen, and I will be exalted in the earth. The Hebrew word translated into be still actually means take your hands off. Get your hands off of it. You stop trying to fix everything. Well, I'm waiting, I'm praying, but you know, I did this and I did this and I did that and I did that. Well, that's the thing, you did too much. Sometimes you need to sit back and be still, sit still, stand still. We must trust that what may seem like a hopeless ordeal that has whittled us and detached us from our royal inheritance will be turned into a stepping stone that will ultimately lead us to a no greater love type of relationship. So if you will be willing to lay at his feet until he gets up, somebody say until he gets up. He may not get up at midnight. Boaz got up at midnight. He may not get up for a year. But you need to stay at his feet. Make sure that you stay there. Now, in, the, in Isaiah 40, the, the scripture that I read with our text, the Bible says that if the cloud sat, the people sat. It didn't say that the cloud had to sit for three days or they would move on. As long as that cloud didn't move, they didn't move. God's glory will reveal itself to you in various times in your life. And it's for a purpose. Don't get up and leave the cloud. Sometimes you get happy that you saw the cloud and God spoke to you. And he said, man, I'm going to run with it. Don't run. The cloud is still there and he's got more to speak. He's got more ministering to do. He's got more healing to do. He's got more deliverance to do. Why would you want to check yourself out of the hospital when they're still trying to run tests? It's foolish. But you complain, oh, I'm so sick. I don't feel good. I'm going through this and then going through that. But I don't want to sit up in the hospital. Well, you need a hospital right now. And thank God, God is not like our hospitals today where they just want your, your, your money. And then it's on to the next patient. He actually wants to sit with you. He wants to commune with you. I believe that Boaz and Ruth spoke and talked and communed from that midnight conversation when he woke up to the next morning. I couldn't go back to sleep if somebody I knew wanted to marry me and I had my eye on them. And I man, they, they, they feel the same way. How, how could I go to sleep on that? There's no way that I could sleep on that. I'm done, let's stand.